everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Mobility Podcast. Very excited to be with you today, and hope you all are getting ready for the holidays and ready for the new year. I know I'm in shock that 2018 is coming to an end. Some, I just wish someone happy 2018, realizing, nope, 2019 is coming. <laughs> I'm looking at our outline, and it says as we close out 2017. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I told you, I'm guilty. Anyways, this is Greg Rodriguez with Best Best and Krieger, and here with my co-hosts. Uh, Greg Rogers with uh, Securing America's Future Energy. And Pete Gould with Shared Mobility Strategies. And as always, I'll give the lawyerly disclaimer that views are our own. So today we're excited to have Malcolm Glenn here with us. He's the head of global policy, um, accessibility, and underserved communities with Uber. And so today we're going to get into a, a whole different discussion around kind of thinking about the future mobility, future transportation, and how does this word equity uh, play into the discussion too. I know a lot of people are throwing around the word equity the same way they're throwing around data. And I think today we really want to get into learn more about what's Uber's thinking around the future of transportation, what is the role of private companies in the future of transportation, and how do we truly use these emerging technologies and these new opportunities to enhance mobility. And for something that I've been thinking about is how do we elevate the discussion around equity and around accessibility beyond just a talking point and make it a reality. Um, so again, we welcome uh, Malcolm. Thanks for taking the time to be here. And with that, um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us about your role at Uber and kind of what you've been up to. Well, thanks, Greg uh, and Greg and Pete for the opportunity to chat today. Um, I appreciate you bringing me on to talk in a little bit more depth about this notion of equity because I think you're right. It is a buzzword and a talking point that a lot of people use, but it's not always clear what everyone means when they're talking about it. Um, and so I think about my role in a couple of different ways. Uh, I lead our global policy work around accessibility and underserved communities. And I really think about that as a two-fold job. One is to talk about the work that we are doing in the space of increasing mobility options for people who have traditionally had marginalized access to those options. And that involves talking to advocates, uh, talking to people with lived experience, either um, having difficulty from a physical standpoint or a geographical standpoint or a financial standpoint getting access to transportation and really learning from them um, what we can be doing better and what we're doing well. And then I think the second part and arguably the more interesting um, part of the job is really then making that case internally and becoming the internal advocate on behalf of those communities at Uber and making sure that I'm pushing our product teams our operations teams, our design teams, to keep in mind these notions of accessibility, underserved communities, and equity when they're building products. Um, and so um, I am an advocate externally, but I'm also an advocate internally. And I don't think you can really get at the core of achieving equity, or at least striving towards the achievement of equity, if you're not doing that advocacy both internally and externally. That's great, and that's exciting to hear. And I think more companies are starting to create positions like yourself, um, which is great to, you know, we read about all the different things Uber is up to these days, and it's, I think one of your challenges, we talked a little bit offline, is how do you kind of figure out who are the right people on each team within Uber, and then to make sure that, you know, you have this difficult and challenging task of kind of creating the policy and, and leading the discussions both internally and externally um, to your, you know, new partners that you all are seeking to um, partner with with the deployment of the new technologies. So with that in mind, um, 
you know, where does Uber see itself in this very competitive mobility space that we're all living in and, you know, experiencing on Twitter? I think every day there's a new article about um, some new, new Something, experiment, anything. pilot project, new report coming yeah. out. Um, so yeah, just curious to hear your thoughts on, on what Uber's focused on, and especially with your new role. Yeah, it is a it is a fast-moving space. Uh, I suppose no pun intended. I think a lot of <laughs> transportation-related puns could come up in the context of this conversation. Um, but I think we're focused on uh, thinking about new product offerings, because ultimately at the end of the, d the day, people um, engage with us based on the products that we offer, and the way we can really stand out and continue to innovate is by offering products uh, that our competitors don't uh, or that really demonstrably improve the experience for users. And so certainly for me, I've been very focused, particularly in the last uh, couple of weeks and months, on an announcement we made a couple of weeks ago around an expansion of our wheelchair accessible vehicle offerings. Um, we are now working with an organization called MV Transportation, and they are the largest provider of paratransit services in North America. And through our engagement with MV, we are now able to offer a significantly improved level of reliability for wheelchair users in a number of different markets. Right now, we are um, able to, um, wheelchair users are able to get a wheelchair accessible vehicle um, in 15 minutes or less on average in six major North American markets. DC, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, Toronto, and we are now working with MV Transportation in Los Angeles and San Francisco as well, and so we're likely to get to that level of reliability uh, early next year um, in those places as well. And so if you add up those eight markets in totality, they actually represent about half of our trips in the United States and Canada. And so we're talking about, in very short order, uh, about half of the folks who use Uber on a day-to-day -day basis are people who live in those cities able to get access to uh, a, a wheelchair accessible vehicle in 15 minutes, which is a, a demonstrable increase over many of the existing options, particularly when you think about paratransit and taxis and some of the other availability. Um, so we're really, really excited about that, but we're also really, really excited about some of these um, ventures that we're making into the new mobility space. So uh, folks in a number of cities have certainly seen uh, the proliferation of scooters um, take hold. Uh, we are currently not operating a scooter product in DC, but we are in a couple of other places. Um, and earlier this year, we acquired a company called Jump Bikes. And I think Jump Bikes is really, really interesting because unlike a lot of the other bike companies, it is a dockless product. And so um, a lot of the other um, bike entities require you to build some infrastructure in a place before it can operate. And when we think about this notion of equity, I think one of the reasons we were really excited about the prospect of working with Jump and ultimately bringing Jump on as a part of the Uber team was you don't require that infrastructure to get those bikes into a part of the city. So when you think about DC, um, our bikes are in all parts of the city east of the river in Ward 7 and Ward 8. And we can certainly do a lot more and plan to do more to get more of those bikes in all parts of the city. Um, but the notion of equity kind of at the core of, of the dockless product is something that we're really thoughtful about. We're going to be in the very near future starting to do some engagement around thinking about accessible bikes and folks who can use handbrakes uh, using our products. And there's still a lot of work to be done there. But um, I think we are thoughtful around building equity into our current products, starting to think about it in a really robust way around our future products, and we want to continue to make sure that all of our sort of older previous products are also uh, keeping in mind those notions of accessibility and equity.
So you, you discussed how uh, the partnership with M MV Transportation uh, was able to bring the uh, wait times down to about 15 minutes, right? Which is, which is massive because typically if you're trying to get a paratransit ride, you have to book, what, 24 hours in advance or more? Right. Um, and then you have a response window that could be like as much as an hour or two sometimes, right? right? And so how are you guys able to reduce that response time? Is, is, is there some sort of new method of dispatching drivers that you're using? I assume through the app, right? Yes, that's it's a, it's a good question and it has been um, a challenge for us. And I think part of the reason it has taken us some time to get to this point is because we've tried a couple of different models mm -hmm. to see how we could make this work. Because the reality of at least for UberX, which is the product that most people are familiar with, is that it's most people just using their own cars on their own time. And most people don't have wheelchair accessible vehicles. And certainly, if they have those vehicles, then they're not using them uh, with the frequency on the platform that we need to be able to get a level of re reliability that riders have come to expect. And so, what we do is we uh, work with MV. MV buys the vehicles. They put the vehicles through the modification process because it's very difficult to find accessible vehicles mm -hmm. straight off the manufacturing line. And then MV recruits and puts the drivers through a training process on top of our existing background process, background check process. Um, and then MV handles the payment to those drivers. And so um, they are able to help us scale in a much more consistent way than we're able to do ourselves considering the limited nature of both the wheelchair accessible vehicles and the drivers. In most cases, it's just a matter of us recruiting drivers onto the platform for the UberX um, product. But in this case, we need both the drivers and the vehicles, and then we need to then bring them together. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's an added challenge. But through our work with MV, um, and I think a really kind of innovative way of thinking about this, we're now able to get to that level of reliability in these markets. Um, we, wanna, we don't want to stop there, though. I think we're excited about the progress we've made, but you know, when Dara, our CEO, wrote about this announcement a couple of weeks ago, he said, and I think this was a, a really a smart way of thinking about it, we're at the beginning, not the end of this journey, and we are very cognizant of the fact that we have more work to do, and so we would like to build on this work and get to this level of reliability in more cities, um, and that's something we're gonna be very, very thoughtful about going into 2019. Great. And maybe one logistical question is, are the, of the six cities you mentioned, are these pilot programs or are these actual contracts or how's it working? Great question. So these are programs that we plan to support and maintain going forward. So they're not programs that we're, um, that we're sort of doing on a pilot basis. Now what we will do is we will apply what we're learning from these cities to the cities where we uh, extend this relationship going forward. So ideally, you know, we'll learn some things from the eight markets where we are now and where we go going forward, we'll be able to mitigate some of the issues that we have. We'll be able to launch a little bit more quickly, build up supply more quickly. Um, but we're investing quite heavily in this and this is something that we plan to support in the long term um, because ultimately I think there's a cognizance um, both across many rank and file employees and particularly at the leadership level that this is the right thing to do and we need to continue to support it um, if we want to continue to uh, grow and, and be successful as a business. That's great. Yeah, so on the 15-minute the, the wait time is, is uh, you know, as Greg noted, is a dramatic increase 
or improvement from the the paratransit experience for most riders. Um, and one one issue we kind of touched on it briefly before the show, but I'd love to get your thoughts on it, is in in the world of the Federal Transit Administration um, and paratransit. The, you know, one of the core issues here, and it's the I'm sorry, the ADA is equivalent service. Um, and and so how do we get it so that new technology providers like Uber who are taking it from 24 hours to 15 minutes aren't then punished because they have the data to give you know like a very specific these are our wait times for these vehicles these are our wait times for for non-accessible vehicles you know that you got from 24 hours to 15 minutes but if you're still providing seven minutes for non-wheelchair accessible vehicles that suddenly that because that data is available that that becomes a uh, a problem where there is a lawsuit because you're providing you're not providing equivalent service and so I'm curious have you guys had conversations with the FTA and trans agencies or how are you approaching that the kind of double-edged sword of having such accountability and reliability that has not necessarily been um, the norm in the industry yeah Pete it's a great set of questions and I think certainly something that we think about a great deal um, uh, particularly in the context of my work. You know, I think it's worth thinking about kind of why this notion of equivalent service exists in the first place. And you think about the degree to which the disability community and particularly advocates in this community have fought for so long for so many basic protections when it comes to not just transportation, but a whole host of other parts of life. Um, and so I think the, the sort of foundational letter of that law and the, the spirit behind it is well understood and has gone a long way in making some meaningful progress. Um, but in our in our context, I think we think about it as how can we improve on existing options and how can we push ourselves to be better. And so um, I think you're right that the traditional paratransit experience is something like 24 hours. And when we announced our relationship and the work we're doing with MV Transportation a couple weeks ago. Uh, we really wanted to lean into those 15-minute average ETAs because we know it's not perfect and we know it's not what you can find on, say, UberX in a lot of places, um, but we know it's a meaningful improvement. And 15 minutes is, is, I think, good, but perhaps we can do better. And in a lot of the cities where we're operating with MV Transportation, those numbers are actually significantly lower than 15 minutes. Um, So I think it's a matter of understanding where that notion of equivalency is coming from, and it's rooted in really trying to, I think, account for some of the hugely significant barriers and differences that exist for certain people with certain disabilities. And so I think we appreciate the the notion and spirit of that law, and we do want to continue to push ourselves to be as good as possible. We also want to be cognizant that 15 minutes is a meaningful improvement and think about, okay, are we assessing these things based on um, what they're actually doing for customers, the meaningful impact that it has on customers or something else? And I think as long as we're always thinking about it from the prospect of what is the experience like for, for our customers? Is it positive? Are they having a meaningful improvement over the way that they have dealt with transportation in the past? If the answer to that question is yes, then I think we'll be moving in the right direction, but we always have to continue to ask ourselves that, and it's, it, it is rooted in this notion of equivalency. Yeah, because the, the, the difficulty there is that one solution for that problem is to uh, make the wait time for UberX 15 minutes 
and just and, and so it gets again to the it's a matter of are, are things better than they were yesterday yeah i think that's right i mean i don't think there's anyone at uber who would artificially make the wait times longer for any one of our products i think that's probably the antithesis of of, of how we want to operate um, but i think that's right you know let's push all of our products to have as low of wait times as possible and if again we are meaningfully improving over the options that have previously existed i think we'll be doing the right thing and not this isn't meant to be legal advice but having worked on a few of these situations <laughs> dealing with equivalent service i think this is kind of a practice pointer and a lessons learned about you know setting clear expectations around a pilot project if you know in the event that a city does put out a request for proposals or a solicitation around wanting a complete um you know, ride-sharing service is going to be subsidized, especially if you're using federal funds, to make sure you understand what the requirements are going to be and make sure you have that candid discussion with your potential private partner around what are your capabilities. And I appreciate that, you know, I, I think it's important to emphasize that this is an improvement. 15 minutes is an improvement from having to schedule something for 24 hours. And in my experience, having that conversation with your federal funding partner, mm -hmm. explaining how this is a pilot or the first iteration of something, and then just keeping everybody informed, not only, you know, not only elected officials that are approving the project, but also citizens that are hopefully going to benefit from the project, and then your federal, you know, your federal funding partners as well. Um, again, we're in a brand new space, brand new technology, brand new services, and like Malcolm saying, how do we continue to improve and make things better? And that's why I was, I was curious if you have any, you know, based on your experience partnering with communities, maybe not just on this project, but just as a whole from an Uber perspective. One thing I've been thinking about is, you know, we hear this word pilot project, cities go through one version of it, and then you never hear about it again, and you never see this next iteration. I think we're starting to see that with dockless bike share. But do you have any tips for maybe how to create a pilot project 2.0, 3.0, or how we get there? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one of the ways that you do that is to really be thoughtful about the metrics by which you're judging success. And uh, just to make one quick last point on uh, the wheelchair accessible vehicle service, I think we've had these conversations with a number of governments and transit agencies around um, what is the measurement by which you're actually delivering a high quality experience to people. And historically, a lot of times that has been based on the number of accessible vehicles. and that perhaps exactly just and sometimes not exactly sometimes not even on the road yeah. that's exactly right and I think for us it has always been more about what is the experience like what is the amount of time it actually takes for you to get a car it is less relevant how many accessible vehicles there are as a part of a quote unquote fleet or as you said Pete as a part of a procurement process and it's more important how long it's actually taking you to get a vehicle and making sure that there's actually a level of reliability in getting that vehicle. And so that's one of the things we've been thoughtful about, certainly when it comes to wheelchair accessible vehicles, but also around some of these new mobility projects. You know, in a lot of cities, we are excited about launching bikes or in some instances scooters, and we have to have conversations with cities around um, the number of uh, bikes that we're able to offer, the number of scooters that we can deploy in a city. And we oftentimes uh, m have the conversation with people around sort of is less important the, the total number and more about where we're putting these, these devices, where um, they're being used. Um, it's m more important for us to gather data to see uh, patterns and trends about where people are taking them so that we can then inform the decisions about where they're going 
uh, in the future. And we understand, listen, you know, a lot of the things that we're doing are new. And it is, it has not historically been the job of governments to, you know, anticipate what kind of regulation they're going to have to do for some future innovation. Usually the innovation happens and the regulation follows. And so I think there is an onus on us to make sure that the lines of dialogue are open with governments in the early stages so that we can educate them on the way that our products work, on the way that we we at least believe some of these innovations should be judged, so that when we come to the table to talk about, okay, here's what the regulatory environment's going to look like, they're not starting from zero. And so um, it's important for them to recognize that perhaps the old way does not always apply to the new things, but I think it's also our job to make sure that we are talking to them sooner rather than later, um, because there's an element of education that is our responsibility and not necessarily theirs. That's great. And maybe one last point that you probably want to make, um, and that I'm curious about, is cost. Um, you know, we have the 15-minute, hopefully, uh, wait times, but cost-wise, what's it going to cost people? Yeah, it's a great question. And from the riders? From the riders. riders yeah. Probably something I should have led with, but all of the, every wheelchair accessible vehicle trip is the same cost as an equivalent UberX trip, so they're priced the same. Wow. And that's very important, you know, to your earlier question, Pete, you know, I think when it comes to equivalency, price is something that we really do believe pretty deeply in the letter of that notion. That's also um, pretty strictly laid out. Yes, <laughs> it is pretty strictly laid out. And, and, you know, the, sometimes, you know, where we are in the laws are yeah. on the same page, and that's There's always a, good. I, mean, I think we will all agree, there is an absolute, there is a reason that the ADA Without was doubt. passed Without and is still absolutely necessary Without today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and I, I wholeheartedly support it because other, it, it is not the easiest thing to do. It's not the most profitable thing to do. Otherwise, if it was, you wouldn't need an ADA. And so I think it is important, too, that you, it's, and I think we're really seeing it as part of the, the maturation of the you know of mobility companies whether it's Uber, Lyft, and others in this that um, the time from launch to okay you know we're, it's time time to grow up I think is is really um, has 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 sped up a lot. Yeah, and listen, we're spending um, a, a lot of money on making uh, the wheelchair accessible vehicle service uh, as reliable as as it is uh, tens of millions of dollars uh, in the first year um, but I think history is littered with uh, examples of companies public entities people in general not doing the right thing on behalf of yeah. of marginalized people and it was some legislation or regulatory environment everything from the Civil Rights Act to the Voting Rights Act yeah. to the Americans with Disabilities Act that changed those outcomes and um, I think you're right you know, we wouldn't need any of these laws if everyone was just predisposed to doing the right thing um, but it is important to be thoughtful around um, you know how we're measuring success and I think those are uh, conversations that we have started to uh, uh, make more progress on with governments than I think we were perhaps a couple of years ago. And what, uh, time, you know, arrival time and wait time is not the only thing from the existing system where there is a, there is a lot of low-hanging fruit. You're not the only one spending a lot of money on, on paratransit. <laughs> there is, you know, th and this is where I think a lot of the excitement came in the, in the first round of the Federal Transit Administration's uh, MOD grants is that, you know, even a uber black car surging multiple times can easily still you know deliver a trip 
for half the cost that a the average paratransit right. trip in a uh, in a market in, in many markets goes. So I mean, mm -hmm. I, there's a lot to from the transit side of things to benefit as well from a budgetary standpoint and a sustainability. I think that's exactly right, and we're starting to see this. You know, for example, we have a really innovative pilot project ongoing in Boston where we uh, are now working with the MBTA, the Transit Authority, uh, to alleviate some of those costs around paratransit. And so um, a number of users who are part of the ride program, the paratransit program there, can actually use Uber and other services in order to get where they need to go. And obviously the, the, the experience is fundamentally different than paratransit. Instead of 24 hours, you get your car in a matter of minutes. It's on demand. You are the only rider, um, and it costs the same as a paratransit ride. And so um, it is subsidized in part by the city, but it's still, on balance, actually costs them less to do that. And I think Boston is a great example because you know a large number of paratransit rides can be served by UberX and UberPool. But it was still important for us to make sure that we had an accessible product for wheelchair users and so now wheelchair users can also participate in the paratransit pilot in Boston. I think that's a perfect example whereby you create a better experience for riders and it saves the city money and that seems like a win-win. All right, and, so, and then one last on, on the um, uh, accessibility front. The, I think one response that you that we've, you do here is, you know, I see 120, and we'll get into this, but you know, I see a 120 billion dollar valuation. Why don't you guys just buy a hundred thousand wheelchair accessible vehicles and put them on the thing? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the conversations around you know, sort of going public and, and an IPO are, are a bit of a gift and a curse. I mean, obviously, the prospect of going public is going to be really valuable for a number of stakeholders, particularly our early investors, many of whom made pretty significant bet in the company before we were anywhere close to a sure thing. It's going to be really valuable for other shareholders, myself included. Um, but it's also important to remember that you know these, these sort of on-paper valuations <laughs> are slightly different than the realities Those of are our expectations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the realities I of our. I thought Malcolm was buying dinner. Yeah. He's, a, he's a millionaire, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because you know there has been so much talk around the IPO, and I think yeah. for us, for most rank-and-file employees, you know, it hasn't really changed what we do, and we're not. We're not letting it impact the way we're thinking about kind of executing on our 2019 plans, making sure I get that number right. Um, <laughs> but um, it, 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 in a lot of ways, we're already kind of operating as, as do many public companies. I mean, we release our financials in a fairly transparent way every single quarter. And if you look at those financials, you see that we're still not cash flow positive. <laughs> um, and so um, it is important to recognize that I think the things we're doing now, and Greg, you touched on this point earlier, are really investment are really an investment in our own future, and we do plan to change you know, the calculation of some of those financials over the long term. Um, but we are continuing to make pretty significant investments in things like wheelchair accessible vehicles and new mobility options, um, and we're doing some really interesting things around potentially um, getting. Uh, things like transit information into our app, and that costs money, and perhaps it costs a lot of money now, but I think it's a bet that we're willing to make because we believe that in the future it's going to create outcomes that are better. Um, and so um, we wish we had 
um, the amount of cash that sometimes our on paper valuation uh, <laughs> makes people believe. Um, but we're not there yet as a company. Um, but the goal and part of the reason we're making those investments today is because we, we, we definitely want to get there and we think we can. Malcolm, this is great. I, and I think um, we're going to pivot into um, another aspect of finance, which is transportation finance and paying for infrastructure. Um, it came up in New York City, the congestion fee, uh, congestion pricing, um, and then we've also seen some discussions of um, reallocating curb spaces and talking about charging at the curb, um, hashtag some zones for anyone on Twitter. <laughs> um, how are you guys thinking about congestion pricing? Do you, do you see this as an issue for Uber or do you see this sort of as a godsend in, in terms of saying, look, let's end single occupancy vehicles, let's get more people in these cars? How are you sort of thinking about this? Not that that was a leading question or anything. <laughs> but I think you can imagine uh, where I personally, and I think certainly where the company stands, um, we believe that congestion pricing is a good thing and could alleviate many issues related to congestion and traffic in a number of different places. And I think, Greg, you touched on kind of what our real long-term goal as lofty as it may sound is, which is to really wean people off individual car ownership. Um, we were having a conversation actually before this and kind of looking around and seeing all the people uh, on the streets of D.C. who were driving by themselves to get home and presumably they got to work the same way yeah. as the only person in a car um, uh, on the trip to and from. And so um, congestion pricing, I think, is one in many steps to start to wean people off um, individual car usage and then really long-term individual car ownership um, because certainly it it passes the costs of of those um, those fees onto the people who are actually making uh, sort of the least efficient use of those roads. It also incentivizes carpooling and products like Uber Pool. Um, and congestion pricing will have a meaningful impact on us too, because there are a lot of drivers who are driving around looking for fares using the Uber platform. But we're okay with that and I think we recognize that that's actually the right thing to do in the long term and everyone's going to benefit and listen I think we recognize that we're still a long way particularly in the United States in getting people out of the notion of, of driving a car themselves I remember when I was 16 there was nothing I wanted more than to get my own driver's <laughs> license so I could drive oh, yeah. by myself which is um, it, it, it sounds pretty crazy when I think about it today um, but the more we can do to incentivize other modes, the better off I think everyone will be. Um, and um, congestion pricing is one in a number of solutions, but I think it's something that we'd love to see more cities think about adopting. Right, and I, I think a lot of the, the question too is, is how these uh, congestion fees are um, assessed to each person, right? And I believe that there was some sort of issue with the New York City one with, uh, if you have a shared ride, it, it was it was still it would still made sense because you still paid a lower fee than single occupancy drivers until you got five people in the car if I remember correctly was it, is that true I'm not I don't know the yeah. specifics of um, what the New York proposal was but in general the notion of more people in higher occupancy uh, being disincentivized seems um, a little bit illogical um, because I think the more people you have in uh, the fewer the fewest amount of cars obviously. Mm -hmm that has a significantly positive impact on how quickly it takes you to get from point A to point B. Right. And so, you know, congestion pricing is sort of the broad umbrella designation, but then also being very thoughtful around mm -hmm. what incentive structures you're placing 
um, in what kinds of behaviors is really, really meaningful. And in general, um, I think it should always be in people's best interests to share a ride if they're able and if that is mm -hmm. an option for them. Um, and to the degree that we can make sure that we're structuring um, uh, sort of uh, congestion pricing and similar proposals to take that incentive structure into account, I think we're all going to be better off. And I think, and I think this plays off of our when we were talking a little bit about congestion fees and user fees. And I mean, one big thing we're all watching with regard to that word infrastructure is, especially from a transportation perspective, at least in my opinion, is trying to figure out what do I owe for my use of the infrastructure. Yeah. And it's just going to be a fascinating discussion. I'm sure you all talk about a lot is what can we pass on to the writer for its use of our platform, but also the infrastructure that we're using as we start to see more congestion fees being implemented. And, you know, for our listeners, AB 1184 uh, passed in California to give San Francisco the right to start charging congestion fees. So I think we're going to start to see this, you know, continue to roll out. It's probably, you know, 2019 could be another year of the curb yeah. and, and, and congestion fees. <laughs> I hope so. And, and everything else. But uh, I think it's, it's something to watch and I'm sure, you know, we're going to continue to think about it and talk about it. But with our time kind of wrapping up, uh, maybe we can get a little kind of free flow discussion and to let Malcolm kind of talk about, you know, what are you going to be focused on in 2019 now that we're getting closer to New Year? And the fact that your role is also international is really fascinating to me. Um, and love to hear what you're kind of focused on internationally, too. Yeah, I think um, the international component of my job has been one of the more fascinating things I've done um, since I've been in the role, and it's given me an opportunity to really sort of fundamentally question the way that I think about some of these um, categorizations and groups. You know, what does an underserved community mean? Well, that's an interesting question here in the United States, but I think it is a more interesting and more complicated question the further outside of the United States you go. Um, so when we think about 2019, you know, one of the things that uh, in the last couple of weeks actually that we were really excited about was uh, our CEO Dara was actually in Cairo and he was there for the launch of something called Uber Bus. And this is basically a mini bus service that you can access through the Uber app in a city where people are very, very um, used to using minibuses as a means of transportation, but it's oftentimes a little bit difficult to figure out where and to make sure that you're going to be there at a time when you're actually going to be able to get a ride and there's actually going to be space uh, on the vehicle you're using. Um, and so um, Uber Bus was basically a product that was designed exclusively for the Cairo market. And I think it's something that we can now expand, but we really thought about, okay, what are the specific challenges to people from an affordability standpoint, and how can we start to address those? So I think that's one of the things that we're really excited about. Um, Uber Lite is another product that I think is really, really cool. It's something we launched a number of months ago in India, and it basically addresses the question that a lot of people have had, which is that I have a smartphone, but my smartphone data plan is not robust enough to deal with the Uber app. Is there a way that I can access Uber on the phone that I have today? And so we introduced this product that is a five megabyte download that allows people who have either access to a limited amount of data or who are in a place that has limited 
uh, sort of smartphone data infrastructures to still be able to use the Uber app. And it removes some of the bells and whistles that folks here are used to, but it gives the same basic experience, even if you have a phone that might not be as robust, that might not be as high-end. And the great thing is it works on 99% of Android phones. Um, and it's something that we're currently uh, offering in a number of Latin American markets as well as in India, but it's the kind of thing we would like to expand. And so I think we're going to be um, looking at some places in the Middle East and thinking about launching light there as well. Uh, and, and not to go back to one of the earlier topics that we mentioned, but uh, you know, I th I, it is worth thinking about how a lot of the progress we've made around wheelchair accessible vehicles is not specific to North America. So in the last, I think, two months, we now have uh, a wheelchair accessible vehicle product on the road in Bangalore, India. And this was through a really innovative partnership we have with an organization there that has specifically earmarked some funds for sort of socially responsible efforts. And through that partnership, we now have a number of wheelchair accessible vehicles on the road in Bangalore. And, you know, to the point that challenges are different in other places to the point that we have protections in the United States like the ADA. There are not protections like that in a number of other places around the world. And so for us, putting wheelchair accessible vehicles on the road in the U.S. is growing an existing transportation pie of accessible options. And uh, I think we would all agree that there perhaps are not enough of those, but there are some options even in the absence of Uber. In so many other places around the world, there is almost no other option. Um, and so the, uh, the value add that we provide in a place like Bangalore um, is so much more meaningful than I think people realize in other parts of the world. And so um, I think we are thoughtful around both looking at specific geographies and thinking how can we really solve problems for communities um, that are specific to these locations and then we can kind of turn that on its head and say how can we export those solutions to other parts of the world. You know, limited access to data is not just an issue in Latin America, in the Middle East, and in India. It's an issue in a lot of places right here in the United States. And so what if we can use some of those product solutions that we've been developing around the world and apply them elsewhere? And so that's what I'm really excited about in 2019. Um, um, and so there are a lot of ways, I think, that we can think about how um, from an accessibility standpoint and from the perspective of underserved communities, uh, there's a lot of good that we can do. And that's interesting. I mean, that kind of goes kind of contrary to the point earlier we were talking about. You talked about how a lot of these countries don't have the ADA, and it's almost as if you developing these services, deploying them, hopefully creates some sort of regulatory requirement to promote equity or accessibility. Yeah, I mean, we are an American company, and we started and have, uh, I think, uh, over time grown, particularly in the early years, a great deal in the United States. And so we um, we come from, in a lot of ways, the perspective of you know how things grow, grew, and a lot of the um, sort of the environments in which we work based on the United States. And so I think a lot of the good that's come of that is that a lot of the ways in which we think about providing an equitable service come from a lot of the protections that folks from historically underserved communities have here in the United States. Um, but it works the other way as well. I think yeah. a lot of the really deep-seated infrastructure challenges that we don't necessarily understand here in the United States allows us to think uh, in a more uh, deliberate way about how we can s solve for a lot of people who 
um, maybe on the margins here in the United States um, when it comes to infrastructure. And so um, that's the value of being an international company is we can borrow from all different parts of the world, all different types of environments, and ideally solve solutions for everyone in as many places that we operate as possible. That's great. Well, I think uh, our time is up. I think we actually stuck within our time limit for once. So, plus or minus nine minutes. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting better. So, thank you for bearing with us throughout this learning process. But thank you to Malcolm for joining us. That was a great discussion, and hopefully, you will come back on in 2019. I got that one right. And uh, Malcolm, if people like want to follow time. your work more, um, are you on Twitter, or is there any anywhere they can go to follow what you're working on? Yes, and thank you, Greg. Craig and Pete for the opportunity. Um, I'm on uh, many of the social media platforms. Malcolm Glenn is my name, M-A-L-C-O-M, just one L. Um, thank you all for the opportunity to chat today and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Great. And you can follow the Mobility Podcast um, on Twitter at Mobility Podcast or um, catch our episodes on the website at mobil- uh, mobilitypodcast.com. There it is. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter at AVGregR. You can follow me at Smarter Transpo. And you can follow me at Shared Mobility S. All right, that's a wrap. Happy holidays, everybody. Have a happy and safe New